trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where wrong thinkers of every stripe can gather and revel in wrong think. And on days like today, we get to do so with uh, one of my one of my good friends and one of my clearest thinking friends, that being Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good. I'm ready for another session of deconstruction. You know, we have to uh, we have to dissect everything because whatever we're told, you can't assume that the face value of it is legitimate. You know, we've been given serial wooden nickels by these elites, and I think it's time that we bite hard into them to find out what the substance of it is. Here, here. And you've got a couple of uh, recent articles that I think really help dig into a couple of issues that can illustrate the, the disconnect between those who uh, want to rule us and reality. You have one here, uh, I think you published this one very recently about it's not about mm-hmm. gas mileage. Yeah, uh, that just went up this morning. And it was prompted by my looking into the news that um, Genesis, which is Hyundai's luxury line, Mm-hmm. For the 2023 model year, they are eliminating the V8 engine that used to be available in this car, which, mind you, it's a top-of-the-line car. It's close to six figures. Uh, and in favor of that, they're putting in a little V6. And that's of a piece with what Lexus, Audi, and a number of other high-end manufacturers have done. And it's not just them. Uh, if you look across the spectrum of vehicles, you'll find that engines are getting smaller and smaller. Now, we're told all about the fuel efficiency. It's your fuel efficiency. But if you dig into it, there's almost no difference in the actual economy of these things. Uh, for example, the uh, the new V6 engine that they're putting into the Genesis, it rates 17 miles city and, and 24 on the highway. The V8 got one mile per gallon less than that. So, so you know, you ask yourself, why are they doing this? What's the point? Why would they do it? There's no rational reason for it, you know, particularly in a high-end car where, you know, you're paying a lot of money to get something that's above the ordinary, that's different from lower-priced cars. And one of the things that defined that was, hey, I got a V8 or even a V12. Now you're getting a V6, and it's not a more powerful V6, so you're getting a smaller engine, you're getting less power. What's the point of that? Why would Hyundai do that? Why would Genesis do that? Why would any luxury brand want to do that? It's contrary to the point of the thing, right? Yeah, so it sure sounds when you like dig it. Into it. When you dig into it, uh, it's solely because of these, these ever-tightening federal regulations, the object of which clearly is not to increase the fuel efficiency of vehicles. That's the face value lie that people are told. Rather, it's to extinguish engines fundamentally. You can see this this attempt to, to winnow us all into EVs. And I like to say it sarcastically like that because I think <laughs> it's important to say it. You know, And the end result of getting us into EVs is ultimately to get us out of cars, as you and I have gotten into on previous occasions. I No, I, I don't think you're wrong on any of these counts here, Eric. And... That's that really surprises me, and I, I know we've had this conversation before, but now I have to ask: Is anybody going to be making a V8 anymore? Uh, have we seen the last of the V8 interceptors? Very probably. Uh, you know, at least as far as any vehicle that is obtainable to us peons, to us average people. Um, I think, in fact, the last uh, V8 that was uh, available at a price point that people like you and I could afford. Uh, is the Dodge Charger. And as you and I have talked about before, that's going out of production after the 2024 model year. So it's gone 2023, actually, I think. 
Yeah, so that's out the window, which will leave a handful of extremely expensive vehicles. Mercedes S-Class, BMW 7 Series, Daimler, Maybach, cars like that. In other words, you know, the Zill limousines of the apparatchik class, the elite, they'll still have those things. It's just that you and I will not. Well, as long as we're doing our part, Eric, to, uh, you know, save the planet, I guess Mm -hmm. our, our consciences can rest easy, can't they? Well, you know, and speaking of that, uh, and I get into this a bit more in the article, you'll note that they're also targeting hybrids, you know, which are highly efficient. You know, you think, oh, they, they, you'd think they'd want to promote hybrids. After all, they are very efficient. They use very little gas, and they emit very little gas, if you're concerned about that, because they have very small gas engines that only operate part-time. That's the whole point of the hybrid. But they're very, very practical little vehicles. You're not tethered to an electric cord, because when the, uh, the charge of the battery runs down, the gas engine steps in and keeps you going. So it's a really elegant solution to this supposed problem at face value. But it's not the problem, is it? The problem is they do not want us to have cars, period. And no matter how hard that these, uh, you know, these well-intended engineers try to figure out ways to comply with the ever-tightening regulations, it's never good enough. I point out in my article, the Volkswagen is working on a diesel hybrid that would have averaged, averaged at least 80 miles per gallon very, very fuel-efficient, very practical car, but, oh, no, can't have that. You can't have anything except nothing, which is ultimately what they want us to have. Wow. Yeah, I, you know, there's a time when I would have, uh, I probably would have raised an eyebrow and said, okay, this sounds a little conspiratorial, but, Eric, sure, me too. The, the more you and others have helped me connect the dots that, look, if you get everybody into an electric vehicle, they are completely, 100% dependent upon the grid. And if the grid goes down, either on accident or on purpose, guess what? Their dependence remains. That's exactly right. Uh, And there's also another aspect to this. It's it's also economic dependence. Note that these EVs are very expensive. Note that despite all the babble we've been hearing about, oh, they're going to go down in price, just like computers. You know that argument where they said, well, the the initial batch of personal computers, they were very expensive, and then it got cheaper. And look, everybody's got a computer. Remember when they were saying that? Oh, yeah. In fact, the EVs are getting much more expensive. Ford recently announced that it was going to increase the price of the EVs that it sells by about 17 percent, you know, by about 8,000 bucks. Tesla increased the price of its EVs. They're all doing that because it's it's impossible to build these things without uh, imposing tremendous costs because of the materials that are involved. They're simply expensive vehicles. So what does that tell you? They're trying to drive people out of cars by making cars unaffordable. That's the purpose of EVs. Wow. And, and there are other areas, too, where we're seeing this uh, maniacal need for control. Uh, the energy sector is a big part of that. Um, Eric, we've talked about how the food sector and, and our food mm-hmm. supply appears to be one of those vulnerable points as well, where, where control is being sought by people who want to, I guess, call the shots. Yeah, sure. Note that they are using kind of the same, um, the same basic technique. They are uh, pulling diesel fuel out of the uh, out of circulation by making it expensive. And a lot of people don't understand that diesel fuel is critical to agriculture, both in terms of fertilizer and in terms of operating the machinery, which is mostly diesel powered, that runs big farms or any farm for that matter. Uh, and so what, what the, what's the effect of that going to be? Well, the effect of it is going to be there's going to be less produced. And that means the cost of what is produced is going to go up and there's going to be less of it. Isn't that great? Yep, I think uh, we're already feeling the pinch in a lot of ways, but uh, somehow I get the impression that uh, the, the folks in power, the the oligarchs, 
they don't feel like we're, we're, we're feeling the pinch nearly as much as we need to. Well, don't worry. We'll be able to eat sky prawns. Have you heard about that? Oh, no, I haven't. <laughs> so it's a way for them to rebrand crickets and oh. locusts. They're sky prawns. Oh, Delicious. Mm-mm, good. Wow. Well, I guess if they can get enough gag suppressant in there, we'll, I guess we'll, we'll make the best of it. But, man, it's – I. Well, no, we shouldn't make the best of it. I think that's key. I think the time has come for people to say enough is enough. No more stepping back and no more seeding ground. Enough of this. It's illegitimate. And I think the, the key uh, to pushing back against this is to deny the moral legitimacy of it. There is no crisis. This is all bunk and hokum. It's all uh, manufactured hysteria designed to turn us into serfs for the benefit of these elites. And the elites are not going to be eating sky prawns. They are going to be eating the best grass-fed Wagyu steaks and driving around in a V8 and V12-powered Zul limousine. That is what the future holds if we let it. Wow. Well, I think you and I have have touched before on the need for ha- having to having the ability to stand on your own feet, and that's going to look different for different people. Some people may decide, mm-hmm. you know what, uh, my backup system is going to be we're going to go more uh, bicycle oriented or motorcycle oriented or something mm-hmm. like that. But if you're not uh, if you're not thinking these things through right now, the wake up call seems to be approaching rapidly. It does. You know, and by the way, that brings up something I thought might be of interest to people listening to the show. Um, you know, a reader said something on my site the other day about, you know, it's getting cold. And to think about, well, you know, how am I going to stay warm when it's cold? And that's a big topic right now uh, in Germany and, and also uh, here in America. And uh, I got to thinking about that. Uh, around here where I live, which is in a rural part of southwest Virginia, most people have multiple ways to keep warm. I, for example, I have a, um, a wood-burning fireplace. So that if the propane, I have a propane heater too, uh, if the propane truck does not show up or if propane is too expensive, I can always burn wood. And I think it's really good to always have alternatives. And that kind of dovetails back into this whole EV thing, having alternatives, alternative fuels, different kinds of vehicles, you know, horses for courses to have the best solution for whatever the given problem is, is good. And it's never bad to have more than one option with regard to anything. Here, here. All right, we've got to take a very quick break. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Really should take some time and uh, check out his website. In fact, don't just check out uh, the articles themselves. Take a few minutes to go through the comments at the end of these articles. Eric's uh, readership is uh, smarter than average. Learned a lot from him. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. All right, Eric, one of the things that uh, I really like and respect about you is you're consistent in your, your principles. And that doesn't mean you're immovable and your mind is closed and you can never learn anything. But you've been very consistent in your principles, meaning sometimes you have had to point out that uh, Donald Trump, for whatever good he has done, also has uh, had some some negative impact on uh, on our lives or on our political lives and of course that brings forth the cries of derangement tell tell me about what that, that ironic? What signifies well it's ironic to me i mean it's both depressing and ironic and amusing i guess to varying degrees you know we 
you and I have talked about how some people are immovable when it comes to things like masks and vaccines. And, you know, they have a kind of a religious faith and you can't uh, get them to even entertain anything that might cause them to question the faith. And there is unfortunately a similar problem with regard to Donald Trump. You know, some people will absolutely not entertain any criticism of the man, no matter how factual and no matter how relevant and important that criticism is. And then what they'll do is accuse you of being deranged, very much uh, of a piece with the way the people who are masky people and vaccine people would accuse you of being a science denier, right? Right. It's, it's a very similar phenomenon. So I've pointed out on a number of occasions my problem with the fact that, that Trump has yet to acknowledge the fact that a mistake was made, a very bad mistake with regard to these vaccines, which aren't vaccines, of course. Uh, and he won't do that. And I got into uh, got into it in a bit greater length in the article that I just published before we got on the air about all of the prior failures of the orange man. And I think, you know, to say that you're deranged for pointing out these facts merely puts you in the same category as those crazy people who said you are anti-science for pointing out that wearing a bandana over your face does nothing to stop the spread. Right. Well, this is this is one of the things that's so difficult and frustrating about any kind of political discourse these days. There are a lot of people who believe, uh, you know, rightly, you know, or wrongly, that their guy is going to be the one who's going to save us from all this mess. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's just the pragmatist in me, Eric, but um, I think politicians may have greatly contributed to our mess. They're certainly not going to get us out of it. No, absolutely not. Now, at the same time, I know that ultimately we're going to end up facing a hideous choice. Uh, come 2024, assuming <laughs> assuming we get there, we're going to have to pick uh, the you know the the best of two alternatives, or rather the least worst of them, right? Right. And I, I'm not an impractical person, and I'm not one of those people who thinks that uh, only the absolute perfect is acceptable, and anything that falls short of that has to be dismissed. I may even vote for the orange man again if he ends up running again, not because I trust him, not because I think he's competent, but solely because I think that it would result in less damage than whatever the alternative is. No, that that makes sense. But uh, like you, I, I'm looking at uh, some of the hysteria, and, and, and I'm looking at how absolutely two-tiered our justice system is becoming right now, where mm-hmm. if if you are on the conservative side of the uh, the ideological spectrum, you know, the, the law will be used with its full weight and fury, you know, to, to keep you in check. If you are on the left side of the political spectrum, you pretty much have free run to do whatever you want to do. What was I saying? Illinois. Did you hear the number of crimes that they're now dropping? Any kind of bail yeah. requirement? Holy yeah. smokes. Violent crimes. But political crimes, you know, you look out. Yeah, now, that... the interesting thing about it to me, or at least one facet of it that's interesting, and I think that the people who are behind this may have not considered it, and perhaps they ought to, is that they are delegitimizing the system. You know, when it becomes apparent that it is a two-tiered system, and that uh, it's not about the law, it's about who you are. And, you know, if, if who you are isn't uh, uh, pleasing to the people who control the law, then the law will be enforced. Wow. And that just serves to render the whole system completely illegitimate, and that is simply going to accelerate the demise of the system. That's a that's a very accurate uh, description of it, by the way. And I, I don't know what the, what the proper response is other than, look, there are some things that I have the power to change. Um, I can't really affect policy change. But one thing I can choose to do is to, to live my life as freely as possible. And that means not infringing on other people, um, regardless of what some politician in Washington, D.C. has put on paper. Well, without doubt. And uh, I think... What we're getting to see, 
it's going to scale. And what I'm referring to here is you may have been following this out in California where uh, the regime's rules are really insufferable. People are just not obeying anymore. They're just chipped back with it. They're just leading a pirate life. And I think that is what's going to happen. Now, mind you, I agree with you. This isn't about going out and hurting people. That's not what we're talking about. It's about just refusing to obey these stupid rules. You know, it begins with the masking and all the rest of it. Just, no, I'm not going to do it. And and more and more people are going to do that. Uh, And that is going to further accelerate the the end of the system. Now, the danger, of course, there becomes what is going to replace the system that we have. Right. Well, and that's that's where I think uh, maybe we should be having a discussion about well, what comes next. Personally, yeah. I'm yeah. I, I, I'm hearing people talk about we've reached the point where we have two very um, divergent uh, viewpoints, and we should peacefully go our own way. And then I hear other people say, "Oh, that's been tried before in the 1860s, and mm-hmm. it just can't happen." And I want to know why can't it happen? Well, sure, and it did happen once prior to 1861. It happened in 1776. Uh, when the colonists decided that they just simply could no longer operate within the the context of being part of the British Empire. And so they tried to peacefully go their own way. Of course, the British weren't particularly keen on that and did their very best to prevent it from happening. But we celebrate that every July 4th. So clearly it was a good thing, apparently. Uh, yeah. And I don't see why it can't be a good thing again. Now, you know, how we do that, that's the question of the day. I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot. I think we all should be thinking about it, a way for us to just kind of you know, cut our losses, peacefully figure out a way to part ways, and go on about our separate lives. Yep. I, and, and for those who say, well, I'm surprised you guys would even think of such a thing, it's like, what's the alternative? Do, do we wait sure. until, until violence is you know, inevitable? Because if there's, a better, well, you know, if there's people, a better way, that's how I'd rather do it. Well, when people, of course, and when people put it that way, my, my usual retort is, well, would you stay in an abusive marriage if you were married to somebody who was literally physically uh, abusive, you know, or abusive in some other clear and uh, uh, objective way, hit you, uh, uh, tortured you psychologically, whatever, would you simply just stay and endure, or would you try to figure out a way to get out of that bad marriage? And, you know, the principle is the same. We're, we're caught in this position of being paired with abusive people who won't let us alone. So the only practical solution, you know, is to get away from them somehow. Yep. And, and it's, it's, it's going to start with a conversation. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not trying to start trouble here. I think, uh, I think what we're trying to do here is head off trouble, but, uh, but trouble, right. trouble seems to be coming regardless of, of what we're doing here. Yeah, unfortunately, because that is the other side's modus operandi. You know, people on our side, I, I've been trying to be very fair about this. And I'm going to use myself as a personal example. I don't want anything from anybody else except that which I get on a, on a voluntary, peaceful basis. I'm not looking to take anybody else's money. I'm not trying to tell anybody else how they should raise their children. And, you know, that's where we need to get back to. Yep. But, uh, but. Yeah, there, there are people who are, they have no compunction about uh, wanting to control other people and impose on other people. Yep. And, and unfortunately, yep. they seem to be the ones that have captured a great many of the institutions around us. Unfortunately. And I think, you know, the first step is coming to terms with that, realizing that that is, in fact, the case. And then the next thing is to figure out how we proceed from there, given that. Here, here, Eric, we're down to uh, about 30 seconds. Let's talk a little bit about your yep. website to, what can people expect to find there? If you want to give a shout-out to your sponsors, I'd say go ahead and do that, too. Well, I mean, they can expect to find practically anything. You know, it is EP Auto, so it does focus a lot on cars. 
but it transcends that. It focuses on freedom, um, freedom represented by mobility, the, uh, the, the, the capability to go wherever you like without, without having to beg permission to do so. Uh, we have very topics, too, so I encourage anybody who's interested in those things to stop by and have a look. Yep, you'll find uh, you'll find a lot of uh, like-minded people out there. And Eric, for me, sometimes that's that's the most comforting part of all is just the realization that I'm not alone because it sure feels Amen. that way <laughs> sometimes. Amen. All right, thanks, my friend. Great to talk with you. Let's do this Thank again you next too, week. Brian. Sounds good. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'd like to talk for a moment here about Garage Door Pros located in St. George, Utah. Local company. These guys do it all. They install, they service, they repair garage doors, commercial service, residential service, you name it. They are there to serve St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, and Colorado City. All you have to do is pick up the phone and call 435-525-2773. Or you can go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. Sure appreciate them being sponsors of the show. So I'm sure that you have uh, had the social contract sprung on you before. Usually, this happens in the context of uh, you or me or somebody saying, you know, I don't really like the fact that government is doing this, or I think this municipal policy is a bunch of garbage or bunk and hooey, whatever, you know, however you say it. And someone will step up and say, well, you know, it's part of the social contract. You agreed to it whenever you uh, agreed to live here. And that seems like a pretty tough one to, to overcome. Well, I did agree to live here, so I guess if, if I'm standing in this particular geographic location, therefore, I'm subject to this uh, contract. Wait, contract? And then hopefully smart people start thinking, when, when did I ever sign a contract? Now, I know some will say, well, Brian, come on, this is just, it's figurative. goes back to Rousseau and his idea of how the social order should be, but the citizen always subordinate to the will of the majority. At least I think that's kind of how Rousseau put it. I know that uh, the collective in Rousseau's thinking definitely had the advantage over the individual, which is why I'm on the opposite side of that equation. But Paul Rosenberg takes it a step further. In fact, he comes right out and asks, is the social contract legit? I think you'll like his explanation here. He says, the social contract is a description of the origin of society and the legitimacy of the authority of the state over the individual. Now, the social contract asserts that all of us have consented to surrender some rights to to a ruling group in exchange for the protection of our remaining rights. So he says, the question I'll address today is whether this is a legitimate contract. Paul Rosenberg says, the social contract is certainly enforced as if it were a legitimate contract. But enforcement doesn't legitimize anything. That's just one half of a contract executed unilaterally. No, he says, for a contract to be legitimate, 
a clear agreement and authorizations on both sides are required. Specifically, and this is condensed from Wikipedia, a contract is, quote, an agreement entered into voluntarily by two or more parties, each of whom intends to create one or more obligations between them. The elements of a contract are offer and acceptance by competent persons having legal capacity who exchange consideration to create mutuality of obligation. Now that's an end quote to, to that uh, explanation from Wikipedia, but Paul Rosenberg goes on to say, any contract that fails to meet this standard is not a legitimate contract and its enforcement can't be justified. So let's examine some other aspects of contracts. Competence, for instance. In order to make one, in order to agree rather to a contract, you have to be competent. You can't, for example, make a contract with a hungry five-year-old trading a few candy bars for one-third of that child's future lifetime earnings. The child isn't competent, and any such agreement would be invalid. No contract can be binding upon any person prior to the age of competence. Then there's the matter of voluntary agreement. A valid contract has to be agreed to. No contract and no subsequent enforcement is legitimate unless every person being held to it, or in other words, having it enforced upon him or her, was given the free choice to either accept or reject it. And without specific and voluntary agreement, guess what? There's no contract. Now, the, the standard of agreement typically applied to the social contract is, well, we all implicitly agree by using even one thing provided by a government. Now, this very clearly would not stand as voluntary agreement in contractual law. Then there's the matter of duress. A contract must be agreed to without duress. That is, without a threat of harm. And so our rejection of the social contract, should we wish to do so, may not be accompanied by any threat of punishment or actual punishment. Now, the usual retort to this fact is that if we want to exit the deal, we have to leave the ruler's territory. But that, however, places the ruler's rights above our own as a starting point. In other words, it lays grave expenses upon anyone who wants to exit the contract prior to them accepting the contract. So that, again, would never stand under contract law. Then there's the matter of undue influence. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, undue influence involves one person taking advantage of a position of power over another person. And the people said to have accepted the social contract, however, at least the vast majority of them, were compelled to attend schools beginning long before the age of consent, operated by the other party to the contract. Now, that by itself is grossly inappropriate and only gets worse when we see that these schools invariably teach the social contract as fully valid and all alternatives as invalid or worse. And it's also the case that the other party under the social contract employs legions of armed men and authorizes them to subdue those who break their rules. So his point is, no contract would be valid under these conditions. It would be entirely unenforceable under contract law. Then you have mutuality of obligation. Without mutuality of obligation, there can be no contract. If the other side of the contract isn't meeting their obligations, there has to be recourse. But that's never applied to the social contract. I mean, if it were, 
Well, the citizens of New York City could have demanded a refund at the least following the attacks of 9-11. So clearly the other side of the deal failed to meet their obligations. And if one side of an agreement fails, then the other side must be recompensed. In the absence of that, <clears throat> there is no contract. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, My purpose in addressing this subject isn't to generate any specific response. Without a doubt, millions of people act as if this contract were real and will continue to do so. But he says, What I would like to see emerge is honesty. Those who wish to justify the status quo, well, they're free to do so, but I'd like them to put forth justifications that are honest and substantial, not just slogans endlessly repeated. I think you can probably see why at least some people in power, and I mean from you know the upper levels of the federal government right down to your local municipalities, would start getting a little bit nervous when people start questioning the social contract. Because it sounds very much like, hey, 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 they might, uh, they might actually quit believing in us. Believing that we are in authority and we are the ones who have the answers and we are the ones who must be obeyed. I do wish that more people had understood this, particularly at the onset of the lockdowns a couple of years ago. I think we might have saved ourselves a lot of difficulty and a lot of suffering had people been paying attention. Ah, well. Hopefully this is something we can learn from, though. And I think I think Paul Rosenberg is asking the right question here. If you didn't agree to the contract, if, if you can ask them to show me the contract. And if they can say, well, it's just an implied one, sorry, that's not how contracts work. So what then? It'll make for an interesting conversation, but if you, you know... You want to really read something that's that's fascinating, read Oberon Herbert's book on the compulsion, the right and wrong of the compulsion of the state. That gets to the nuts and bolts of at what point exactly can a person claim to have moral authority to coerce or to force another person to do their bidding. And again, statists will find this one hard because you know, Aberon Herbert points out the, the circumstances in which that would be, you know, um, acceptable are very, very narrow. But we behave as if, oh, no, that's perfectly all right. If you don't do what all of us think you should do, maybe your grass on your property is too high or you have a car that's inoperable sitting out there, why, the rest of us should be able to send people to your home to punish you either through taking money or the threat of jail or, you know, taking you, you know, physically into custody, whatever the case may be. You know, it's, it's, it's using force to solve a problem, to try to pretend someone is part of this contract. Well, you agreed to it. Yeah, it's just, just not going to fly. And you understand, being against this social contract in no way means that, therefore, you've got to be antisocial and you can't cooperate with other people. The key is it's got to be on a voluntary basis. Just like a contract would be, right? You voluntarily enter the contract, understanding the terms and so forth. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the job of, you know, the lawyers to complicate things. Well, let's complicate it enough. Maybe we should focus on simplifying for a while and see how that works. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And a special shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. That's my friend Spencer Worthington. High quality, new and remanufactured ammunition right there at your disposal. You can click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Listen, while you're there, you might want to check out lifesavingfood.com because that's another good option in terms of food storage, emergency preparedness stuff. You know, things that basically improve your position in life. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. Please do your part to either support them with your business or to refer people who could benefit from what they have to offer. Well, there's so much going on around us that is out of our control. Probably didn't need to remind you that, but I thought I would, simply because finding peace in life in large part depends on learning how to control how we respond to events around us, especially those things we don't control. Well, I dug into the archives here, thanks to our friends at the Foundation for Economic Education. Got an article here from Barry Brownstein from a few years ago about how to stop being a non-playing character or NPC in your own life. He says, continuing the trend of social media purging, Twitter has banned hundreds of right-wing accounts for posing as soulless, non-playable liberal activists, otherwise known as NPC accounts. Now, Twitter claimed these accounts violated their rules of intentionally misleading election-related content. Now, the term non-player character or NPC comes from the world of video games. And Barry Brownstein says an NPC character is a character not controlled by any of the players. The program controls the NPC to advance the plot. Since the character is controlled by the game, the range of actions the character can take is limited and predictable. So why is the left compared to NPCs? See, I'm I'm getting this education now just a few years too late. It's because liberals who in the knee-jerk fashion support politically correct positions have been called NPCs. Just like their non-playing characters in a video game, their responses seem to be limited and predictable. Their views seem not to be driven by thought and reflection, but instead they parrot left-wing orthodoxy in the manner of a scripted character. Memes have been created using bland cartoon avatars called NPC Wojak. To show the vacuous nature of left-wing orthodoxy, the avatars are crudely drawn with soulless, emotionless faces. NPC characters dispense bromide such as diversity is our strength. <laughs> the humor is biting and progressives are alarmed by the dehumanizing nature of the memes. However, you don't have to be liberal or anti-Trump to behave like an NPC. Barry Brownstein says Trump supporters behaved like NPCs when they reflectively, reflexively rather mouth their own bromides like Trump is a master negotiator. Trust him in response to arguments that Trump is wrecking global trade. He says you don't have to be interested in politics to behave like an NPC. There is a learning opportunity for us all that shouldn't be passed up. How often is our own behavior NPC like at work or at home? Now, Barry Brownstein says, before you answer, ask your family and friends for feedback because you may not like the responses you get. It's far easier to notice NPC behavior in others than in ourselves. In his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, 
Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman writes, The premise of this book is that it's easier to recognize other people's mistakes than our own. Kahneman observes our almost unlimited ability to ignore our ignorance. So consider for a moment everyone's favorite regional sales manager, Michael Scott, brilliantly played by Steve Carell in The Office. Michael interprets every situation and every person through the little lens, through the lens rather, of the little he already knows. And besides knowing little, often what he knows is wrong. Consequently, his actions are almost always inappropriate. Michael is the proverbial bull in the china shop, demanding the world conform to his beliefs. And when things go wrong, Michael blames everyone and everything else for his failures. Driven by his programmed thinking, we could say that Michael lives with a perpetual disclaimer. I'm not responsible for the world I'm experiencing. For instance, in one episode, Michael's about to attempt a stupid stunt by jumping off the roof into a children's bouncy castle. In the episode, Safety Training in Season 3. The warehouse manager, Daryl, tries to stop him, telling him, Mike, you're a very brave man. I mean, it takes courage just to be you. To get out of bed every single day knowing full well you got to be you. Michael says, "Uh, you really mean that? To which Daryl says, I couldn't do it. I ain't that strong and I ain't that brave. Michael buys into every thought that pops into his head. Daryl is saying, whew, I could not live being bounced around all day by my thinking. I'm not going to be brave, that brave rather, to play your part in the play. The point is Michael doesn't even know he's an NPC. Daryl's correct. It takes courage to walk in the world each day like a mindless video game character, pretending to have no power to make different choices. So how do you take responsibility? Well, Barry Brownstein says, Every episode of The Office provides a master class in how an NPC behaves. Michael ignores the warning signs that he's an NPC, but we don't have to. We can choose to notice when we blame others, and take no responsibility for our experience of life. He says, Becoming more aware of NPC logic is the beginning of the way out. We can't change what we haven't noticed. If we believe how we feel results from the way others have treated us, we maintain the world is responsible for our existence. Like Michael, we will then try to control the world, and, as with Michael, our attempts will inevitably backfire. Michael is a major pain to everyone, and so are we, when our inner NPC has the upper hand. Barry Brownstein says there's no end to who and what can be blamed for our feelings. My parents, my partner, my teacher, my manager, my commute, my bank account, the president, the economy. There's a grab bag to choose from. He says, think of the last time you felt like a victim of the world. Notice how you replayed the event in your mind. You may also notice how you were hyper-tuned into your transitory emotions. So the more mental bandwidth we put into replaying events and feelings, the less bandwidth is left for taking responsible action. Barry Brownstein says we interpret our emotional reactions as evidence that we've identified the cause of our feelings. Our inner NPC has a special effects department designed to get us to buy into our mindless blaming thoughts. Next time you feel angry, Notice tension building in your body or your heart racing. You are responding to your inner NPC's self-produced propaganda. Your inner NPC reasons, I'm feeling agitated, so my interpretations must be accurate. But the truth is you're always feeling the effects of your thinking. Emotions are not self-validating. 
So notice the next time you say about a colleague, they make me so mad, how could they? Really? Does your colleague access your mind and place thoughts in your head? Between stimulus and response, there is space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Now, this anthem to personal responsibility is widely attributed to Viktor Frankl, but it was actually written by an unknown author and popularized by Stephen Covey. Covey adds, the space between what happens to us and our response, our freedom to choose that response and the impact it can have upon our lives, beautifully illustrate that we can become a product of our decisions, not our conditions. So Barry Brownstein says, when our inner NPC is in charge, it may not seem we can choose to be a product of our decisions. Yet, Covey instructs us, we have the power to choose our response to our circumstances. Covey warns us that when we ignore this freedom, this responsibility, the essence of our life and legacy could be frustrated. So bringing it back to the office, eschewing this responsibility, Michael Scott lives in a perpetual state of exasperation. NPCs of all political persuasions may be exasperated, yet we don't have to follow suit. We become players again when we take responsibility for our inner experience of life. The life we experience can be the product of our decisions. I just thought that was really good advice. And I know that uh, watching too much politics or being too dialed into whatever is dominating the news cycle on the major news channels... Believe it or not, this can contribute to turning you into an NPC. Why? Because you're spending most of your time reacting to whatever the newscaster or whatever the news cycle is pumping into your life. So this is not a call to, hey man, put your fingers in your ears and hunker down in a cave somewhere with your eyes tightly shut. It's more a matter of choose carefully the stuff that you put into your brain. Be careful what interests you. And uh, relinquish the need to know everything. Try to focus on what matters, what's actually within your purview. Let the rest of it go. Really, there's some peace of mind in that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.